I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Randall Restiano of the Eli Zabar Restaurant Group in New York. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good. How are you? Very nice to see you. It's good to see you as well. So where'd you grow up? Westchester County. It was uh, very nice. I grew up with my grandmother from Italy, so she really taught me a lot. I cooked with her every day after school. We owned a restaurant, so the my great-grandfather opened the restaurant. And uh, when he came over right after World War II, uh, it was passed on to my uncle. And so the restaurants were always around in our life as I grew up with my grandmother. And so I spent a lot of time with her and we cooked a lot. Italian restaurant? It was an Italian restaurant. Yeah. We're originally from a place called Frosinone, which is uh, just south of Rome. And then, yeah, it, it was a very classic Italian restaurant. Not so much uh, the Italian-American restaurant you see now, more classically Italian when they first opened it. They were in the Bronx when they opened and they would cook for the Yankees when they finished. So uh, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, we have all the photographs with my great-grandfather who uh, was the chef. And my great-grand-uncle would have been front of the house. And that was all passed down. You used to run around there when you were a kid, or did they tell you to stay out? Oh, no. I was, I was there every, every holiday. We were in the restaurant. Uh, we always had a special table. Everybody always worked every holiday. So you had sort of this like uh, table that had missing teeth. Like the seats were always empty. And then they'd come back from the, the kitchen, and they'd sit down and eat quickly with you. And then they'd leave and come back. And that's how our holidays uh, always were running around the restaurants. And it was like a rite of passage when you when you reached uh, to a certain age. So at 21, everybody has to then become part of the restaurant, <laughs> at least some portion of it. Uh, I started uh, bussing tables. So, And you were into it or what? I had a lot of things going on. I wanted to be a musician. So this was, uh, this was fun for me just to make some extra money because uh, outside of that, I was also going to school. So I'm in school at night trying to do things that involved music and then on the weekends or a couple of days here and there would, would start to work in the restaurant. And then it just, it grew from there where you, you end up finding yourself there 70 hours a week uh, and you're part of the restaurant. Easy to spend a lot of time in a restaurant. Oh, very easy. Uh, you know, I, I always uh, joke around that an hour takes like a minute, you know, and then like two hours take five minutes. It's the same thing like when, when people come into your restaurant and they sit down, they sit down and they're sitting there for 30 seconds and then you go over there and they say, I've been sitting here for five minutes. You know, like everything is sped up in the restaurant. For so you're time. saying your service isn't very good? No, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I think my service is very good. I think I <laughs> came far. So uh, just uh, an example. 
So how did that interact with the music career later on? I'm very attached to music. Uh, I like to, to write a lot. So I originally went to school to major in English to be a writer. That bloomed into playing music. It turned into becoming a DJ in New York City. And then it became into, uh, now I, I write poetry on a regular basis. It's actually something I also relate to wine. I like to attach a poem. So this this wine actually gave me an emotion. And that emotion reminded me of this poem, or this guy wrote this. And the minute I drank it and I sat there with it, I said, wow, this reminds me of uh, something, say, Shakespeare said. Or this reminds me of a poem I wrote when I was 23. And You're comparing yourself to Shakespeare right yeah, now. Yeah, exa- exactly what I just did. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's my whole uh, philosophy on, on wine is generally, you know, wine is uh, sort of like life and it, uh, not sort of, it is like life. Uh, each bottle has its own, its own life. Everything is living. It's constantly evolving and changing. And part of it was me that, that when I was describing wine to people, they didn't really understand what I was saying, you know? So when you watch TV and you watch a chef cook, um, the ingredients that he uses, you kind of get the idea. He's always oh, putting salt and pepper on the chicken. I know what salt and pepper on a chicken tastes like. And then when I tell you it tastes like uh, black cherry, a bit like tar, there's, uh, you know, there's some forest floor. You look at me like I've got seven heads. So I started using other things and music being one of them, poems being one of them. You know, uh, you know this is more like uh, hard rock as opposed to classic rock. Okay, if you can imagine that. It's got nothing to do with jazz. It's more like rock music, but it's hard rock. And it, that would made it a little bit easier for people to understand. And then we can get further. Once I pour the glass for them, now we can start talking about, oh, this is the black cherry. This is the forest floor. This is the tannin. You also grappled with understanding wine earlier in your own career in terms of how you were going to process it. And so I feel like that's a very personal thing that you just said. Like this probably helped you through it. Oh, it definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know how it is. Everybody starts and you don't really drink wine. And then you want to you want to drink it to drink because you're at that age where you just want to drink something. And then and then that one wine comes and you drink it and you said, "Whoa, what did I just drink? I don't I don't really get this." Um, and then you have to start processing it. And I'm I then started going to school and started to talk to people. I didn't even really understand what they were talking about, you know. And they they're when they're talking to you after knowing wine for many years and you have no understanding of wine, they pretty much talk over your head. Until you sit down and drink, actually sit, spend a night with a wine, they just told you this was going to happen, and then, and then it happens. So a lot of that, a lot of my whole way that I go to describe wine and talk about wine is from my own personal experience and from drinking things and saying, I don't know what this tastes like, but you know what? It reminds me of, of this. And, and then it slowly grows. You know, like I actually, I have like a list, a running list of the greatest wines I've ever drank. But like at the top of them are like four or five that maybe aren't the greatest wines I ever drank, but they were like milestones in my life of saying, oh, okay, now I understand why a wine needs to age. Oh, 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 now I understand what I enjoy about wine. Every wine has to match this wine. Oh, oh, now I understand why they, they plant Chardonnay on limestone. Why is, is that important? That, oh, that bottle. And that's like a, a really a personal thing that I take with me. And, and you still find them every year. There's more things. And there's bad wines, the wines that you drink and you say, uh, oh, I never want another wine like that again. There's the other, there's the, the contrary to what we were just talking about, where if you drink something and everybody's raving about how great it is and you're sitting there saying, this is, this is not good. And that's what I don't want out of the wines that I support and I buy and I put on my list. So it's almost just as important to realize what you don't like. Very important. One of my influences early on told me, the first thing 
you do when you drink the wine, I want you to tell me everything you hate about it. And then let's talk about everything you like about it. Because it's a lot easier for you to always say what you don't like about something. And that's the easiest part. And then we can build from there. And that's always important. I do it to this day. So it's hard sometimes when you drink that one wine that's so great, you can't say anything bad about it. I remember blind tasting one of the greatest wines that I've ever had and saying, you know, I have no clue what I'm drinking, but all I can say is this is perfection, that's <laughs> it, period. And ended up being a, a really great wine. But then you can also do the same thing where you start to say negative things about it. Even if you have to stretch and find something negative about it, it all helps in the overall understanding and your acceptance of the wine and how you're going to build a list based around it. So who's the guy that told you to uh, engage in hate speech there? Who's yeah. That guy? <laughs> uh, so it was one of my first uh, influences. His name was uh, Chris Tana. He worked at uh, Limpero. He was the wine director. He was actually the general manager as well as at my time that I was there. And he told me a lot of things. Some of them were, were very good and technical. Uh, the, the most important thing I took from him was he said, Randall, I want you to tell me everything you hate about this wine right now. And, and, and I did. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier because then you start to appreciate all the things you loved about the wine, even if you have to stop and think. And he was also big on, on uh, a big portion that I like where, you know, a lot of the flavors that you taste are very subjective to your life growing in terms of flavors. But, you know, there's, there's an ultimate core of things you should taste. And then there's the whole outside of the tasting note that's really subjective to you. And he would never tell you you're wrong. So you say, oh, you know, I taste fig. You know, nobody else in the whole room tasted fig. He said, well, you got the core elements right. You're not wrong for tasting the fig. By that time, you'd moved into working in Manhattan. Oh, uh, yeah. Fast forwarded a whole bunch. Um, so I went to work in the family business. I worked to the point when my uncle came to me and said, I, I want you to manage the whole restaurant. This was a small 60-seat trattoria. And, and I wasn't sure. And I, and I went home and, and I thought about it because I really wanted to be a famous musician, but that didn't seem like it was going to happen. Um, so I came back. It was, it was like a rainy Saturday. It was like a very typical movie scene. And I came back on Monday morning and I said, you know what? I want to do it. And he said, okay, so you're going to start over here. And he brings me to the kitchen. And he's like, I want you to, to help them prep the food. And I said, what is this? And what's, what's going on here? No, I, I, I'm the manager. I want to be the manager, you know? And uh, no, he then would successfully put me through every single position, which I thought was, I, I try to do that with a lot of people now as they come up in the, in the business with me, in the restaurants with me, is make them do everything first. So I did it all. I, I was, uh, I was uh, preparing food. I was working the garmanger. I worked the line for about two days. And then the chef said, I love you, but get out of my kitchen right now. because <laughs> so I kind of was making a mess of everything. Uh, worked on the floor. He made me bus tables, which I already knew how to do, but I had to do it again. I was a dishwasher. I worked to, to server. I became the manager, at which point. When I became the manager, he said, I want you to take a couple classes. The first he enrolled me in was the Sommelier Society of America. And that's where everything kind of changed. Because at first I thought, I'm just going to be a, a restaurateur. That's what I want to do. I want to learn how to make this restaurant run and make it run. And I went to the Sommelier Society of America and I just fell in love with wine. And I haven't looked back. And I had to leave the, the family business because, you know, the, the wine that we were serving is Magnums of Montepulciano, you know, by the glass. So it's not really exciting. So I left and uh, I went to work at Limpero at the time. Uh, I was excited by Scott Conant. He was doing something different for Italian food. I was uh, excited to be part of it. So I joined and, and worked there for about a year until somebody that was coming on a regular basis to the restaurant gave me a partnership in a restaurant. 
and that restaurant happened to be back in Westchester. And that's why we really hit it off is that I was from Westchester. He was from Westchester. He was a developer. He had bought this old building and was going to renovate it and make a restaurant. And he said, come be my partner, come run it for me. And so I did. And uh, then I would leave uh, Limpetto and head up to Westchester and work with him for four years until he sold it at the end of those four years. During those four years, it was very important because our, our chef came from Baba where he was working as a sous chef and he immediately was a success. Everybody was very excited about him. And I got the budget to just go build a wine list. And I, I really had no experience to be doing this, but uh, I had just come from you know, working under somebody. And now all of a sudden I'm handed $75,000 and said, go build yourself a wine list. Very crucial time to do it because uh, I was fresh. I was very green. I said, you know, what do I do? So all the taste things that happened were so important to me. And and I started doing a, a lot of, I was, I was ready. I was reading books. I was talking to people. I was meeting people. And I built this wine list that ended up becoming exciting. When I look back, I'm like, ah, oh, why did I, why did I put that on the list? But at the time, it was it worked for what I, where I was in my career, which comes back to something that my uncle early on told me was that nothing, no matter what, can uh, surpass experience. You can you can do it all. You can get the certificates. You can go and get all the education you want, but you really need to be in it and live with it for a bunch of years till you really understand it. So at the time, I built this list. Everybody was excited about it. There was no exciting wine lists. In Westchester, there are now. You go back now; it's a lot of uh, very interesting things happening. At the time, all of the uh, you know winemaker would come into town. We were his first stop, so daily I was getting visited by winemakers, and I was so curious, and I just kept asking questions and asking questions, and I just kept soaking in. And at every moment, uh, things kept happening and changing. Back to when I was at the Sommelier Society of America, one of the teachers there, and at the end of the class, I went to him and I said. What do I do now? I don't know. You know, I work for my family business. I just fell in love with wine. What should I do now? And he said, my only advice to you is go out and drink. Go taste and, and do yourself a favor. Hold on to a couple of countries. Don't try to do the whole world. You're never going to be able to master the whole world. Specialize in two countries and maybe a little bit of extra. So I latched on to Italy and France naturally. It's just kind of from my history. And so... That's where it all began. That's what, that's what I started to do. And that's what I focused on. So I didn't, you know, I, in this restaurant, being in Westchester, we had to have Cabernet Sauvignon from California. I'm not going to ever act like I'm an expert of Cabernet Sauvignon from California. I kind of put it there for the guests that they had it. The rest of the menu, you know, large portions of Sangiovese and Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir and uh, Syrah from Northern Rhone. And that's where it started. And that's kind of what I've been doing since that, that was about 12 years ago. Every year from that point on was more and more in-depth in those regions. And every, every year as I, as I live and talk to, to people like you, listen to your show, I even get further in. It's great. Well, you lived in London for a while, right? Yeah. So, so then uh, he sells the restaurant after four years. The Westchester guy, he's a developer. He wants to go into construction. He wants to develop. You know, he did the restaurant. He was excited about it. He was young. He was right around the same age as us. And now he's got a very successful business. And the chef left. He has actually got a whole bunch of successful restaurants in Westchester. And, uh, you know, where was I? And I just, like, devoted my life to all of this stuff. And everybody's moving on. And new owners coming in. And the new owners are, are such sweet people. But, no, I need to, I need to move on now. This is, this is my next step. This is, you know, God telling me, move to the next step. So, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I was kind of upset 
because it was all happening, you know, you can't control it, but now you're, you're getting ripped out of something you love. And I just told my wife, uh, uh, I want to go to London. I want to go to London. I want to join WSET. I want to work all the way and I want to become a master sommelier. That's what I want to do. And she said, okay, let's go. I, she, she's okay with it. We're fine. We, we sent out some resumes and uh, I got uh, 10 people call me back. So I booked a flight for one week. And at the time, one of the guys that was selling me wine, a uh, really beautiful person, sells Slovenian wine. He's, he's still around, does a great job doing it. He said, I want to thank you for all of the business you gave me over these years. I know you're leaving, so uh, I'm going to buy you a ticket to London. And, and we had some friends there. And I, and I couldn't believe it. he said when he came over from Slovenia to the United States, he was looking for somebody to help him, but nobody would help him. And now he's at the point where he's got enough money. So he said, I'm going to help you. So I'm buy you a ticket to London. And I went and I went on those 10 interviews and I, and I, landed, uh, I landed three jobs out of the 10. Uh, and I sent about 50 resumes just to give you an idea of the statistics of sending out resumes. And then uh, the one that I chose was a brand new restaurant. It was really exciting. It was called Boca di Lupo. It was right in Piccadilly Circus. I would be their first wine director. So they opened the restaurant had opened it already for about a year. Uh, they had stocked some of the wine, but it wasn't really a full developed wine program. So I took that one as my as my option and we moved. Moved my whole apartment, said goodbye to my whole family. And this was a minimum five-year deal. Uh, that's what we said. And we got there and I just, I just fell in love with London from the minute you land. The people are very nice. They drink like fish, which is great because you can experience so much. I mean, you go out to dinner four people and you've had four bottles of wine. You're already starting to, to experience different things. I think you're lowballing it. More yeah. like six bottles yeah. of wine. <laughs> you're probably right. I mean, I, I've seen couples of British tourists, you know, take down two bottles of wine after an aperitif. Oh, yeah. Easy. I mean, we would. I would walk up to tables and like they're like, oh, can you bring us a bottle of champagne? You know, like I didn't even get my word out yet. I'm like, okay. You know, they're like, yeah, we trust you. Give it 100, 100 pounds, you know, 90 pounds. Oh, okay, we'll just go grab it, and I'd bring it to the table, and we and we'd uh, and we'd open it. So every every meal starts with a sparkling wine. I mean, it's like in New York, I'm like struggling to tell people to drink grower champagne, but in London, it was uh, super easy. It was uh, yeah, we'll have a bottle of sparkling, and then we want to move to a bottle of white, and then maybe we'll have a red, maybe we'll have a second red. We're definitely having dessert wine, so pair that one. You know, and everything was like uh, in excess. So I got there, and he gave me a uh, budget of what to do, and. Uh, he was getting very popular at the time. He's actually super popular now. He said, just call. I'm, I'm interested in, in stocking Barolo. So we'd call the importers and they didn't just show up with like three or four Barolo. They showed up with the, the whole portfolio because he was. it was happening at the time when I was there. This was Piccadilly Circus. They all wanted to be on the list. I remember numerous mornings walking in about 9 a.m., and the bar is just, you know, 50 bottles already opened, ready to go for me and him to try. Uh, that is amazing. And I, and I always say, if you get a chance to try a lot of different wines side by side is very important. Not just when the importer comes or not just when you go to, to dinner and you order two bottles of Barolo. Take 50 of them side by side and then start to analyze what you like and what you don't like. And at this point, it still was uh, basically just about what was in the bottle? What are you drinking? Like, oh, I like that flavor profile. I like that. Yeah, I understand. Okay, this is Brol, that's Barbaresco. But we didn't get in depth yet. We weren't, I, at least with me, we weren't there. We weren't be like, I get fig in this. Or fig, yeah. Or if it's like, oh, this was on the clay soil, that's on the sand soil. 
you know, like, oh, what's the difference? I'm not there yet. So it, it happens in London. And then, uh, and then I had an issue with my uh, visa, but it was one year I was in uh, London. It was a truly amazing experience. I had an endless budget. We had people that dying to be on the list there. You had, you had clientele that just wanted a drink. And so it really, really started to happen for me in London. They tell me, go home. I just, uh, we packed back up. We used all of the bit of savings that we had left. I had to call my brother to come over and pay for the last couple of things to get back because now we've spent all this money to move. And one year later, we're moving back. I have uh, met a Slovenian importer in London. Yeah. Exactly. Might have helped you out. <laughs> I should have. I, uh, you know, the, it just seemed like the right thing to go back to New York. And so I got back and, you know, so I have negative money because I owe my brother money. So it's not zero. I have negative. I said, what, I need to do something to go right back to where I was when I was working up to this point. So I took these, these jobs as consulting and I started to go to all these restaurants and it was, it was about nine at the end of, at the end of my consulting. There's now f- five principles that I try to follow when I, when I always buy wine. Even if I like it, if they don't fall into my five criteria, I don't want to support it. So I want to try to support better. What are those five criteria? So when I buy it, it's always going to be something old world. I'm not interested. And this is something that working with Eli Zabar, which is the, the ultimate end to where we are now, um, he always wanted to serve only old world wine. He never had somebody who could really do it. I only want to serve old world wine. So we ended up having a nice marriage when, when we get together. We, we look for the tradition in the area, so we're not interested in international varietals planted on soils that are traditionally planted to the varietals of that region. That being said, in the same vein, we try to keep everything monovarietal as best as we can. There are some places where part of the tradition is to blend, so we buy Chianti, we buy Chateauneuf, you know, so these are things we're going we're gonna to keep buying. Uh, the ones we're buying are usually predominantly one varietal, Grenache or Sangiovese. And we even look for other guys that are making 100% one varietal in these regions as well. So we want everything to be sustainable or organic or biodynamic or natural. Um, this is a philosophy that he believes in, and, and I've now come to believe strongly in it. But we don't serve any Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot on any of the lists. Um, I mean, there's, there's actually just one. There's Trevelon, but it's you know, half, half Cabernet Sauvignon. But it's, uh, it causes something even more important to happen because a, a guest walks into our restaurant or our shop and they say, I want a cab. That's like the first words out of their mouths. And, well, you don't have it, you know, so we have to now start talking. And actually, now I get to have a conversation with you. I get to ask you, what is it about cab that you like? And then we'll start to explore a different area to go. But it's all over in all the restaurants. So it's four restaurants and one shop and you, you won't find a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot in it. Nothing to... Uh, bad against the varietal itself, but it's now become a thing that this is what we're going to do. We're only going to serve this. We believe strongly in Burgundy, uh, so we're serving Pinot Noir. Um, we believe strongly in Piedmont. We serve a lot of uh, Barola and Nebbiolo. The final uh, piece to the whole thing is uh, we do, as hard as we can, look for minimal intervention in the winemaking. It's something that we're proponents of. We think that when you when you mess around too much with it, when you manipulate too much with wine, you've now lost the only reason why we're so excited about wine is that it can dictate where it's from. We try it. And it's hard because we're buying so much wine for so many places and we're in New York and you're, you're at the will of an importer who God bless him is just trying to make a living and tell me anything I want to hear to sell me a bottle of wine. 
And then I've got to deal with, you know, okay, so I don't know if this guy's really telling the truth. Let me go look at a couple of things. I start reading your blog. I'll read other people's blogs. And, and they're just relaying information, but I need to get to the source. So we constantly travel to regions all the time to get to the source, to ask the question ourselves. Because the importer tells me, oh, no, he doesn't, doesn't pump over. The website says he pumps over every two hours. I get there, and the guy says, I do a little bit of this, I do a little bit of that. But we need to know because we're, we're here now making a very strong stance, especially on the Upper East Side, where things happen to move a little bit slower. So we're making a big stance on the Upper East Side. I need to back it up. One of Eli's major requirements for everybody is knowledge. He doesn't mind arguing with you. He's going to tell you maybe you're wrong, but maybe he's wrong, and he'll admit he's wrong, but you're going to need to have the knowledge to back it up. And if you don't have the knowledge, he don't want to deal with you. So he gets upset and he, and he moves on. So we need the knowledge. I need the knowledge. I'm making decisions. Uh, I need to make the right decisions. What was the segue to working with Eli? I was consulting. Uh, so I was utilizing a lot of the um, importers to either find me another place. Somebody needs to do another thing. I was talking a lot to all different importers. Uh, Eli at the time was still buying a lot of Burgundy. So he dealt with a lot of, of the importers as well. One of my friend, Joe, who works for Frederick Wildman, and uh, we still buy a lot of Burgundy from Frederick Wildman. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he reminds you now and again. Yeah. He's oh, like, yeah. All Here's time. my card. Joe DiOrenzo <laughs> yeah. got you this job. That's yeah. right. He does. Trust me. He does. He said uh, he, he was in there actually um, showing the wines of uh, Francois Lamarche, but it's with, with the daughters now. And uh, Eli said, you need to help me out. I, I need somebody to run this program. You know, I, I need to move on. I got other things I want to do. I have other projects. I can't keep worrying about what wine they're buying and putting on the shelf. I need somebody I could trust. He said this to Joe and Joe said, oh, I got just the person for you. And it was right before uh, one of their barrel tastings. So we ended up uh, meeting each other and passing very quickly, Eli and I. And then we set up an interview and my interview process with Eli is unique. <laughs> I could say that. We started with a normal interview. I show up and there's the suit and I, I give him the whole thing. And he's like, okay, uh, this is very nice to meet you. I think this can work. Uh, I'll give you a call and, and let you know what the next process is. And I said, okay. And, and do me a favor, don't wear a suit next time you come in. I said, oh, okay. I, I get who, who I'm dealing with. I, all right. So then he calls me and he says, uh, I, I want you to, to come back and meet me at 9 a.m. the next day. So he calls me in the end of the night. And I said, oh, okay. So I got no suit. I show up to the restaurant and there's the architect and the designer and the chef and um, some others, Eli and his wife. And they're all sitting there planning Eli's table, which we opened in December of 2014. A restaurant. Yeah. And uh, this is the restaurant he's always dreamed of because now he needs somebody that's going to take over the wine program and run it. That it's going to sell all of this wine that he has in the cellar aging. And he's like, oh, this is Randall, everybody. Okay. Hi, you know, say hello to everybody. I don't know what's going on. They're taking out the blueprints. They start talking about where the bar is going to be, what this is going to look like. The designer's talking about that. At the end of it, he says, okay, Randall, I want your opinion right now. And this is the second interview. And I don't, I don't have a job. I'm just sitting here now with all these people. And, you know, what's funny is that it actually seemed normal to me. And I think this starts uh, Eli and I relationship as sometimes crazy as he is. I understand 100% what he's talking about. So I think that I'm just as crazy as he is. And that's why we, we get along so well. So I gave them my opinion of what this restaurant should look like. And he loved it. And it's actually very close. There's a couple changes to the restaurant that's there right now. That was kind of the vision that we had. And then still no job. He said, thank you very much. Uh, do me a favor. Can you meet me tonight at 7 p.m.? He gives me an address. So, okay. 
I meet him over. He's got another uh, business over on York Avenue and 91st Street. Over there is the whole tech department. They, they have they do a lot of internet sales. You got all these tech guys there. He wants to rebuild the website to his wine shop to sell more wine on on the internet. I get there. There's the current wine director sitting in front of me. There's the tech guy. There's the guy that had my job before this person had it. And there's Eli and uh, his wife, and they're looking at the website. And everybody starts talking about what the website's going to look like. And this is interview number three. Everybody talks. And again, at the end, I want Randall's opinion about the website. I, I understand what he's going through now. He wants to see what I, I know or what I am going to be able to offer to him. So I give my opinion of the website. It's not exactly the way we wanted it. There's still in the process of building a better website, but it's there now. We've got the wine up on the website and, and it was part of that. The end of that interview and then we go out to dinner. I, I thought we were, he drives me to his own restaurant and we sit down and, and he hands me the wine list now and he says, order a bottle for us. Let's have it together. Order us dinner and tell me about what you just ordered. That was kind of normal for me. So I did that, ordered the, the bottle of wine. It was uh, 09 Herbaluce from Luigi Ferrando. Because I think if someone had done that to me, I would be like, sure, we're drinking Chevalier. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so one of the big questions, the bottle comes, we eat dinner. He then had this uh, Rouget fish, Petit Rouget. So we had some grilled Petit Rouget under a small little salad. That's what we had. That was our dinner because, you know, it's kind of a little awkward. So we have one dish. We have the bottle of wine. I talked to him about the bottle of wine. The pairing is, is uh, great, in my opinion. <laughs> and he says... Did you see how much burgundy you have on the list? And I said, uh, yeah, I did. And he said, why didn't you order any of it? And I, well, I, I didn't, you know, I, I don't want to order a, a very expensive bottle of wine. So I decided to go simple. I saw the Petit Rouget on the menu. I figured what's going to pair with it the best, something Northern Italian white. I saw Carema and I ordered it. And uh, he said, great. Okay. You're going to start tomorrow. <laughs> I said, well, I can't have some stuff to do. It ended up happening. And then I started the following Monday. And then uh, is that because he realized he could pay you Herbaluce salary? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a funny story, you know. And I and I tell this a lot to people. He said uh, he said, okay, uh, you'll start on Monday. And then we were actually at the dinner with the one guy that had my job before me, Daniel Feldman. He now works for Michael Skernick. He left the conversation, and it was just me and Eli. And Eli said, "So, how much do you want to make?" And I said, "Eli, uh, just knowing you, knowing what school you're from, it's very similar to the school I'm from. I'm going to tell you." I need X amount of dollars to survive. Okay. And he said, fine. And I didn't know what I was going to get paid till payday. And I came into Monday and I worked and I worked a full week. Then the following week and you get paid, you know, how you get paid the next week following. And the paycheck I got was, uh, was more than I said what X was going to be. Um, it was a very competitive salary. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and then I, uh, I went over to him and I said, uh, I am um, uh, very grateful for, for what you did. And he said, well, I, I see a future in you and, and I appreciate all of the things you just did over the past three days. And that started our relationship. And then we started traveling and we travel about three times a year. It's always a different region and there's always Burgundy and Piedmont involved. So we're buying so much Burgundy and Piedmont, we really want to know what's happening and what's going on. He's an amazing person and uh, probably the most influential of everybody that I would mention up until this point. I mean, he really is, um, understands food at a, at a level that I don't think many people even can conceptualize understanding it and then stands his ground on it, which is 
the hardest thing for a lot of people to even understand. I mean, he's he picks out our sea salt that goes onto a dish. Like it's it's at a different level of of what he wants out of something. And and I love his philosophy of food. No suit is everything he likes. I mean, we we travel a lot. And one of his requirements is no Michelin stars. You guys make the reservations. I don't care where we're going. I don't want to go to a Michelin star restaurant. Only if it's there's no other option, I'll go to a Michelin star restaurant. Nothing against the Michelin star restaurant. It's not like that's not how he likes to eat. He likes uh, comfort food, sort of, and a big wine list. So it's got to have a big wine list, and it's got to have comfort food. Those now become something I love to go out and eat. I'm always looking for the restaurant that's got the great wine list, that's casual, that's got the great food at the same time. He's big on ingredients. So one ingredient in the dish and then a couple of ingredients to complement it and that's it. And don't go too crazy. It makes my my life so much better because when I'm pairing wine, you know, I can really pair wine. Uh, not when I've got, you know, the chef and God bless all of the, the wonderful chefs in the world, but they want to put, you know, candied uh, rhubarb on top of my veal cheek and, and I can't pair anything with the damn thing unless they pull the candied rhubarb off. Uh, he won't do that. We'll get a veal cheek that's been braised, sitting over some polenta, and say la vie. I get to have fun. It's levy, actually. It's say yeah. Levy. Oh, oh say la vie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I use that joke a lot. Yeah. It's, it's actually at this point, it's almost like a reflex joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's a good joke. No, thanks. Thanks <laughs> a lot. I've, I've honed it into a gem over time. Yeah. But um, those trips sound interesting. So, what was the first trip? First trip was Chablis. Uh, that was great. That was, uh, it, you know, strange. I'm traveling with somebody I don't really know. It was the beginning of our tasting group. Uh, we now have a group of six people that travel on these trips three times a year. It's great now because we all we all know each other. And we know what each, each person likes. And each person brings a very important part to the whole group, which is important. Anybody uh, future job interviews going along? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you pick the menu. You yeah, I, I'm always I'm like waiting now for the time when right. he's got another interview and then I, the guy standing right, there saying, exactly. yeah, yeah, we're going to yeah. build this restaurant. What do you hey, think? Hey, uh, meet me uh, for dinner at seven. I want yeah. you to meet your replacement. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> so our first trip was to Chablis and I think it was the first offering I got as the new wine director was Chablis. And he said, you know, what do we buy? And I said, in Chablis, I think we should buy Ravno and Dovisat. Those are some. Uh, then we can move down to some of the other names that we thought about. But when we when we moved past the two big names, you know, what else do you buy? He started a, this whole argument via email between all five of us and six of us. He said, no, we need to go to Chablis and figure this out. So we, uh, we organized the trip and we flew to Chablis and spent a week there tasting wines going out. One of the big pieces that Eli has introduced is that he doesn't like to drink young wine. His whole philosophy that he's always wanted to accomplish was, and he started back in 99, was buying wine and putting it in a cellar for a future restaurant that will then serve it when the wine has gotten to its appropriate age. Um, and he's never had somebody to orchestrate that, which is which is kind of difficult. And I'll tell you, inventory takes about three months. No, it takes about a month for me to do inventory because uh, it's literally about 20,000 bottles that I've got to count one by one to make sure it happens. But we do this. So that's what we do on a regular basis is we buy. We invest lots of money every year um, into something that's not going to be sold for 10 years. So the thing that Eli quickly teaches me on a trip to Chablis is uh, I'm not going to drink. I, I even remember we ordered like, uh, at the time it was 08 Le Clos from Dovisat. And uh, he was just, he, had a, he was upset. He was upset because it was just too young. You know, they, they didn't have anything Le Clos older. So we wanted to drink... Grand Cru and Chablis, couldn't do it. 
So you learn this, and then I, I started to have to understand, you know, why is this like this? Let me understand it. And then you start to hang out with him, and then you start to drink these things uh, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and you understand that whole extra layer of flavor that happens 20 years down the road. When you drink them when they're very young, I always explain to people, it's like drinking and the wine forms a V on your palate, goes straight down the middle of your tongue. As it gets older, it forms like an H and it kind of just hangs out on the whole tongue the whole way down. And that's a very important part. And you don't really get it. I didn't really get it until that following November, we we flew to to, uh, Burgundy and Piedmont. And we went visited a lot of people that are all changed my life a lot. One of them was we visited Rumier. And we were trying the wines at Rumier and everybody's ooing and eyeing. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know what I'm drinking. This stuff, it feels backwards to me. Like I, I know I'm drinking Bone Mar from Rumier. It's current vintage. It's backwards. I'm drinking Amaru's backwards. So then I, I didn't understand. And then the, uh, the guy, uh, we call him Jess, Jean-Emmanuel Simon, J-E-S. And he says, uh, wait, at some point, I'm going to find some old Rumiana menu and I'm going to order it for you and you're going to understand. And I'm saying, okay, because right now I don't really get it. You guys can have fun with Rumier. I'm, I'm putting an X in my book, you know, I don't get it. Uh, and then we go out, uh, it's about three days later after we had the tasting with Rumier and it's a, it's a 95 Bone Mar from Rumier, blind. So Jess thinks he's funny and he's going to pour it blind. And uh, he's saying to me, what do you think? I said, it's probably one of the greatest things I've ever drank in my life. And then he pulls out the wine and it's Bon Mar from Rumier 95. He said, the, the importance of it is, the importance of the story is, you don't really understand what happens to a wine unless you, you let it age. And that's Eli's whole philosophy is, is letting things age so that people can understand them. Uh, and I understood it at that point. And that was a, was a very important bottle to me. And, I, and I'll remember it for, forever because you understood the, the importance of aged wine. So did you have some strong personalities in your own family that you worked with before? Oh, yeah, that that would be, uh, that's tough. These are old, old Italians that uh, I grew up with. I can kind of leave it there. And a lot of people that are Italian will know exactly what I say. Um, you know, they'll love to give you some uh, guilt, you know, and and, uh, <laughs> and that's uh, the way that they kind of move. But w- one of the most important ones was one of my, uh, one of my uh, uncles, he owned the restaurant. And uh, he's got um, he's got a hard personality. I love him. I love him to this day. But it, it makes it sometimes difficult um, to operate in it because uh, you know they they demand a lot and they don't show you that you're even doing the right thing. I want you to be here, but I'm not going to tell you you're get you're, you're getting there. You're you're doing it right. You're on your way to the right step. So you're constantly thinking in your head, am I, what am I doing? Am I wasting time? Am I going? And, and I think it's very important because it taught me a lot moving on about the way now I manage restaurants and I manage people is got a lot to do with that. So, you know, here's where I want you to go, guys. And now instead, I actually, I shouldn't say that, but I say to them, you know, you're getting there. You're almost there, but you have to keep trying. You're trying harder. Get there. You're almost there. Otherwise, people just they run away because they can't get to the goal that you want them to get to, even though they're right there. They're a step away from getting to the goal you want them to get to, but you, you couldn't express it or tell them that. I had uh, my great-grandfather, his name is Alessandro, came over after the war, to World War II. There was nothing left in the area. They used to, we're about 20 minutes away from Piglio, where they make Chassanese del Piglio. The major 
product of the area was wine and and uh, farms that were all just destroyed as as the uh, Americans and the Germans moved through. So you had to figure out something to do. So they went to Rome and got on a boat and came over to the United States. Um, we recorded him in, in the 70s, right before he uh, passed away, about five years before he passed away. But my mother, my mother decided to do this. She's going to record him and her having lunch together. And in that uh, conversation, you learn so much. I mean, the one important thing I took from it, and, and I'm going to tell you now, but there's so much to learn just like listening to him from having to, to take his brother and him and go and then take the whole family over afterwards. One of the important things was him explaining the importance of wine at a table. So when you create a dish, the dish that you leave out is the last element is the wine. And that makes the proper harmony. And he didn't know anything about wine tasting and, and pairing and anything like that. He just knew that when he was a kid, they made wine and they put the wine on the table and you drank it together, but that the wine complemented the food, the food complemented the wine. He wasn't sure what he was drinking even. I'm not even sure if they knew it was called Cesanese at the time uh, or Frescati, which was which is close as well. I think they just drank it, but they would make dishes that would drink to to work with it. And that's a very important lesson that I take now being a sommelier and working the floor. You deal a lot with pairings. Uh, as much as you know, I get very analytical and I try to to talk and research where the wine comes from. At the end of the day, my my main focus is making sure that when I give you a piece of fish, I'm giving you the right wine that goes along with it. So those are those are two. My grandmother is uh, was an amazing person uh, in my life as well. She she would cook with me all the time. We would make pasta. She is actually she would do it with my mother. So in the beginning, they had this restaurant downstairs. Was a restaurant. It's called. Alex and Henry's. It was Alessandro and Enrico, but at that time in the 50s, you can't use Alessandro and Enrico. You've got to use Alex, which is Alessandro, and Henry, which is Enrico. And then upstairs, uh, my grandmother would do the the tablecloths. She'd wash the tablecloths and hang them with my mother before school. And some days they would do that. Some days they would make the pasta. They'd roll the pasta out, put it on my, my mother's bed, let it dry when my mother went to school. My mother came home. She'd take the pasta down that's what they would use for the dinner time. We take the the tablecloths down. They would continue the process. So I remember going to that restaurant and ordering pasta, and they said they didn't have any that day. And I was like, "Why is that?" And they were like, "Well, the grandmother had to take a nap." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a little joke. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't actually happen. But be funny. Yeah, yeah. But my uh, my grandmother then I would come home from school, living in Westchester, and everybody's a lot older than I was. They were all out. My mother became a politician. She was out all day long, all night long, which is how politics kind of works. And then uh, my grandmother would have to raise me. So I'd be in there and she, she had a house connected to our house and we would cook together. My grandmother loved her because we would wake up in the morning and I got, you know, like Fruit Loops, eating Fruit Loops and stuff. And she's like, what do you want for dinner? You know, she's asking what I want for dinner. I don't even know. I didn't, uh, I didn't even think about it. And my mother would always be like, I don't know. You, you, you think of it, mom. You know, she would tell her, my, my grandmother. And my grandmother was great because then she would go and, you know, she'd take the shower and she'd get the makeup on and the earrings and she had to go to the supermarket. But like from where she's from, if you're going to the supermarket, it's like the whole town is there. So you need to look your best. So every time my grandmother went to the, she had heels on, she had the bag, she went all dolled up to go food shopping. Funny story. It reminds me of uh, fun things. It's the same way. Like I can't wear sweatpants outside. 
Like I get up and I got to walk the dog. I put on like a nice clothes because my, I always think about my grandmother that I can't go outside and somebody sees me in sweatpants. So I gotta get That's how I was when I was single. Now I'm like, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so she would tell me about the, the old town and they left the house that was there. And so I would, I would then go back and just see it because my grandmother described it. And it was amazing to walk this town, which is literally one street that goes up a hill and comes back down the other hill to walk this town and like see everything the exact same way that my grandmother told me it was going to be. Granted, it wasn't all abandoned like she was talking about being every there was stores, there was people living there, but it was everything she described. And her her favorite part was this house that was down. She lived on the side of a hill looking out over the rolling hills of Lazio. And then the smoke would come up out of the house below her. And she said she would love to sit on the deck and watch the smoke and see all the different shapes that it would make as it would hit the sky. And uh, and when I got there and I'm looking and now there's a lot of grass everywhere because it's abandoned, this, their house is abandoned. There's smoke coming up right out of the same house. And it was almost uh, it was almost like meant to be, it was almost spiritual that I was there. Uh, so she had probably, of, of everybody that I just mentioned, my grandmother had the most influence on me and everything. It does seem like there's a regular connection to the old world, right? Yeah. For you. Yeah, for me, definitely. Different from my brothers and sisters as well. My mother wasn't into politics when they were growing, so my mother took them and, and really uh, put them in part of American history and culture and the whole thing. And I'm not going to lie to you, I'm, I'm very American. I'm very proud to be American. Uh, but I I've, was growing up with a grandmother that spoke Italian. I'm one of four children that can speak fluent Italian. My three brothers and sisters are older than me. They can't speak it, so it's very... I'm the uh, translator in Italy. What were some of the Italian trips that have stood out for you? We traveled to Alto Piemonte. Being here and, and uh, having dealt with Alto Piemonte, you associate it a lot with Barolo and Barbaresco. And in Barolo and Barbaresco, there's lots of suits. There's lots of wealth. You know, you have nice restaurants, those towns, Alba's like beautiful. And then you drive up. And I, I remember when um, the guy driving was Jess and Jess said, okay, we're, we're here. And I'm looking around and it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's poor. Things are broken down and abandoned, and and then you're like random vineyard, and then then you go back down to just flat land and nothing happening. And it was just kind of we all were silent until we pulled up to Sparino and Paolo De Marchi was there, and and he really told us the whole history, and then you, you really understand it. But going there and having seen that firsthand, like I, I was perplexed for for a good month, like I didn't know what to think. Wait a second, you know I've had old vintage Nebbiolo from Alto Piemonte, this should be, this should be royalty up here. We should be like, we came to the king's court or something like that. And it, and it just wasn't now that it's changing, but it's really, it's a, a shocking thing to see. Visiting around Gatineau kind of reminds me of um, visiting around like Rust Belt, Massachusetts. Oh, uh, you know, a hundred percent. One time I was in Lynn, the city of sin in uh, Massachusetts, which is known <laughs> for that. And, uh, yeah, these guys got into a fight in a Dunkin' Donuts, and I, they kind of tumbled out into the street. And uh, awesome. having that experience, I was like, oh, I'm in an area where maybe things are not particularly safe right now. And uh, that reminded me a lot of Gatineau. Yeah. yeah. We decided uh, our first night, like, uh, we had only had one one visit, and we were traveling most of the day. So, I, let's go get a drink. We had finished dinner. and. And uh, we had about three bars before we figured out, okay, this one's okay. <laughs> Let's go in here. 
you know, and nobody was like ever attacking us, but you just walk, you know, when you walk in and you say, we don't belong here. Let's just keep walking down the street. But, you know, I like Italy a lot and I feel like you've had a chance to get there several times. So what are some of the other standout moments for you? We have this fun dinner in Barbaresco every year, a restaurant called Chao de Tornavento. We sit in the kitchen, Eli, because he, he, it's a Michelin star restaurant, does not want to sit outside. The only way he's going is if he gets to sit in the kitchen uh, with Maurilio. That's chef. funny because that's the place with the great view from the tables. Like yep. you can see out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's yeah. beautiful. Like we all walk in and look at it and then we're like, no, we're going in the kitchen. Right. <laughs> and and it's great. And you hear everybody cooking and everybody's around you. And, and Maurilio is so funny. He makes the menu for us every year. But the point behind it is uh, we drink everything blind. So the wine list goes around the table and we all get to choose a bottle. And then we try to trick everybody else as to what's uh, what the wine's going to be. It's a truly enlightening experience on on all ends, uh, good and bad. You know, sometimes when you when you really think you know something, and then you're sitting there drinking it blind, and you're you're pretty much uh, not not in love with it anymore. And then they show you what the wine is. Um, there was one of uh, an enlightening experience for me because one of the group picked uh, an '85 uh, Chianti Classico Reserva from Castellanvilla and blind, and I didn't, you know. First of all, I, I kind of was placing it in Barolo somewhere, and a lot of people were agreeing with me. But for for him to bring out the bottle and it being Sangiovese, I was saying, "Wow, this is uh, very different." That moment was when we started to actually invest money in Montalcino and Chianti and, and buying things like that. I mean, we always bought it, but it would just be on the list and in the shop. Uh, but at that moment, when we were drinking that wine, and hands down, one of one of the great wines of of my life, and even Eli, remember him talking about it being one of the great wines of his life. We decided that we were going to invest in Sangiovese. That was a that was a great experience. But Marillo is great, the chef, because he he did something that I wouldn't expect to have seen. You know, he does a little bit of the foam and all the other things that go on it. Uh, but one day, one of the courses comes out, and it was just a plate with a cross-section cut porcini mushroom with a small sprinkle of sea salt on top. And, you know, I'm looking at him, what's that? You know, and, and uh, you know, he explains it. This is a porcini mushroom from just down the road. I just cooked it in a little bit of butter and I put some sea salt on top. And I think that takes a lot. I mean, here you have a guy who's respected by a lot of people. He's got the Michelin star. You've got people here that come year in and year out that are looking to be wowed. You, most chefs would want to just, you know, take the cannon out and shoot something at us. But instead, he just cut the porcini mushroom and served it to us. And that porcini mushroom tasted, it was depth of flavor on that one piece of porcini mushroom. And uh, and he got a lot of respect in my eyes for that. And it also helped me understand even more Eli's whole philosophy on, on food and everything else. I really understood on our trips to Brolo and Barbaresco some very important things. You know, you read about this idea, you know, and it's not so much happening anymore, but, you know, in the old days, there was like a war. I'm a traditionalist, you're, you're a modernist, and, and we're at war. I don't want your wine, you don't want my wine. When we go out, things changed over four years. We went there in 2013, we just went in 2016. We went another time in between those two. So, it's been about four times on this sort of trip. And in the beginning in 2013, I remember going out to dinner with one of the winemakers, and, and he was like, um, I don't really mind what you guys order, just do not order me a modern Barolo or Barbaresco. I'm like, 
at the time we were all kind of like racking our heads like oh wait where, where do we go with this like how do you know and looking at each other's like is that a modern bro i'm not really you know really sure what what he means by that and you didn't want to insult the guy because he's sitting in front of you and so and we, we did all right in the end of this, the whole story but you then start to i i then was like immediately like i got i got to figure this out for the next time and so i would start to talk and understand and maceration time started coming up and the use of oak started coming up and then i really it really became clean and cut. And I don't think I would have gotten that just staying in New York and having importers bring me wine, even though they were saying it to me. Oh, this is, you know, six day maceration. You just take it like a grain of salt and you just keep, you keep tasting the wine. Oh, it tastes good. I'm going to buy it. Uh, but when you start to understand what it is, you know, and Luca Roagna really changed, changed the world. Uh, first visit 2013, if I remember correctly, it was, uh, we come to the vineyard and he had known Eli. Eli had been there a bunch of years before. He knows Jess. Jess is his importer in France. And then he knew Dan and he looked at me and he said, oh, have you ever been here before? And I was like, oh, no, it's my first time. He said, okay, to the vineyard. And I said, okay, to the vineyard. You know, like I didn't get it. And he's got that beautiful house that sits right in front of Paillet. And, uh, and we're walking and he said, and he kept looking at me and he kept saying, look down, look at the soil. I want you to remember that. And I was like, oh, okay. And you still don't get it at the time. You have to go and you have to, to, to drink the wines and really understand. But that was so amazing for him to, to do that. And he really wanted me to be there and understand it. And then he, he told me he got into the whole maceration time. And, and it was moving on from there that, that uh, I really felt more comfortable with this. And, but he was thinking about how, how much he can get a longer maceration time. Because he said the tannin will grow and then at some point they're going to drop off. And that's what he's looking for. I still think they're some of the, the greatest wines that come out of Piedmont. I feel like a lot of sommeliers don't get to travel quite as much as uh, you. But I think it's also cool that it's often to the same areas that you really develop a relationship with them. Yeah, I, I and I agree. The whole goal is for us to be specialists in the areas that we are. And that's what we want to do. So we keep going back to those same areas. We keep visiting the same people. We keep tasting their wines year in and year out. And even if there's more wines to experience, we will in the course of our lives, but we will get to know this region, uh, what's happening, the history, the culture, the vintages year in and year out. And that's what we want to be known for. I've personally found that visiting some places over and over, it's true that the personal relationships that come out of that affect how I'm drinking it. Like there are wines that I like less because the person wasn't particularly nice to me. And yep. then there are wines that I like a lot that maybe before I started going there a lot, I liked, but I wasn't so incredibly passionate about because we are friends so i agree 100 percent, and it goes even further because then if if on the other end of it you have to deal with importers that are are not very nice it's even harder to you know i love that guy but i it's you're making it really difficult for me to have to support you to support them and and so you know what do you do you end up you know not supporting the wines but our relationships are great i mean we have people that call us and uh, oh, we're in town, you know, so I'm expecting, oh, I got to get all, all the Psalms together. We're going to have a tasting. No, no, they just want to come have a cup of coffee. And that is so much so much more for me that it becomes personal. They just want to come and say hello. They're not used to paying like $6 for a coffee. Anymore, yeah. So they're probably like looking for their friend to hook them up yeah, with a free exactly coffee. Right. They're like, you know, in Italy, this is only a euro. Yeah. Here. So about the restaurants, though, it is a group and with the diversity of restaurants. So have you seen that wine plays in differently to some of the different venues? Like has the reception of what the customers are buying from you changed based on the what the style of the restaurant is? 
Yeah, very much so. So we keep that philosophy that I told you about throughout all of the restaurants in the shop. It's four restaurants and, and one shop that everything follows this philosophy. Uh, it works out really well in Eli's table. It's all geared towards that philosophy. It gets a bit strange in other, in other places. One of the restaurants is geared towards a younger generation. So we sell a bit more of wines that are natural, that are not so much in what we do, but it still follows the same, everything is following the same philosophy. Um, we have uh, a restaurant that's very close to the museum. So we get a lot of, you know, one-timers that come in and out. Uh, we get a lot of Europeaners in that area and they want to drink a wine from California, which is actually funny, but they end up having to drink a wine from their country. But it changes in each neighborhood. And these are not very far apart. New York City, every block you go, everything changes. So in all these restaurants that we go to, everything changes. And then we have one up on, on 91st and Madison in, in uh, Carnegie Hill. And what they're looking for is even more interesting. They, every time I put a wine from the Southern Rhone or Languedoc or Roussillon, it sells out. Anytime I try to put Burgundy on there, it kind of sits a little bit. So it's, uh, every neighborhood is, is a different uh, person drinking it. So somebody said to me the other day, like, uh, oh, and we want Burgundy, we come here. You know, so we're going to drink Pinot Noir, we're coming here. We're going to drink Chardonnay, we're coming here. But if not, they would have stayed, they're actually closer to 91st Street. They'd stay there, but since they're in their heads, they're already associating the restaurant with Burgundy. So all of the lists are very heavy in Burgundy, even if they don't sell it, they're going to have heavy in Burgundy. That doesn't change, but then I have to, I have to move a little bit with what the people are asking for. So if I put Puy Fume on a menu near the museum, I can't sell it. If I put Sancerre, I can't stock it. In Eli's table, I kind of have free reign. You know, everybody comes sort of with the intention of, I want to experience this. It's not common for a restaurant buyer to also buy for a retail shop, except you do that. So yeah. what's that like? It's very different. In the beginning, I kind of went into it ignorantly and just said, yeah, I could buy wine for a restaurant. I could buy wine for a wine shop. It took me about two years to realize that, no, you can't buy those types of wines for the shop. They're going to sit on the shelf. You need to buy these sorts of wines. You know, for example, there are some oddities, you know, so let's talk about Schiopettino for a second. Uh, that works on a, a restaurant wine list. Uh, I can get you, I can come to the table and I could talk to you about Schiopettino. The guy that comes into the wine, the wine shop uh, then looks at me and says, you know, I need a bottle of wine with dinner. And I'm saying, why don't you try the Schiopettino? It's about $40. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's more comfortable with uh, buying something else. At the same time, I don't want to sell him the Schiopettino because then he's going to take it home and I have no control over the experience. He's now opened it. I don't know if it's flawed or not. So it's difficult what you send him because then he comes back the next day and he says, you, that recommendation was awful. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you just drank a cork bottle of wine, but I don't know because I, I, don't, I can't control the situation. I'm not sure about Schiopettino. That's an issue. And so you have to have the clientele that's ready to accept that. You know, we sell uh, a lot more classic burgundy in the wine shop just because it's an easier thing to sell people our shelves for uh, burgundy are about half one wall our shelf for piedmont is another half of the wall it's just easier than than getting involved in smaller varietals in the restaurant it's it's a it's a big collection it's it's a it's a huge wine list so we have a lot of wines from all different different places also i need to always make sure that there is the motor of the business and that motor of the business is so important uh, those people that come every day or that come twice a week, three times a week, four times a week, they really sustain the business for a longer period of time. So I can have fun having 
a burgundy on the shelf at seventy five dollars. Uh, but that's going to be like once a week, you know, maybe some some weeks when it's around the holidays, I sell tons of it, which is great. But the people that are coming in and spending the 15 to $20 a bottle, I need to make sure that they're happy, that they have a product that I believe in, but that I can have that product continuously throughout uh, the year. And that's hard with what we do. So we don't deal in industrial wines. We don't deal in wines that are, that are made in, in huge quantities. So it's a very difficult job, and it's taken this long for people to have confidence in myself and and uh, the, the guys that work with me, because uh, we'll have wine for six months, and you've fallen in love with it, and it's fifteen dollars a bottle, and now I've got to wait for nature to make that wine again. So we've got to wait another six months till it comes back. Um, it's a lot of work what we do. So I'm changing wine lists constantly. I'm changing the shelves. You know, the shelf talker, which is what people read about the wine, has to change on a constant basis. And it's a it's a hard job to keep up with it. That's the major difference. When you're in the restaurant, you can control the whole situation. So, okay, now you're eating this. I really think you should you should try Scopatino. We can go and we can open it and I could pour it. You know what? It needs a decanter. I'm going to throw it in the decanter. Let it sit there. Can I get you? Maybe I'll, just, I'll pour you a complimentary little glass of white because it needs to open up and I really want you to enjoy this at this time. I can't do that at the guy's house so or the woman's house. I can't do that. So it's a, different, a completely different experience to have in both places. You've had a, a fairly varied career, some different locations, some different kinds of restaurants. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? Is there things you think like, oh, it, it took me longer than I wanted to to get to that point or I never did that? Yeah, there's... Uh, so early on, I... I chased uh, the dollar. Uh, I realized that I wanted to be in the wine business, but at the same time, I wanted to have my own money to buy my own wine cellar. So I would just chase the dollar instead of looking back now, stop and go through the steps. You know, I had to get there sort of the hard way. I had to do all it on my own. I had to, to research things. I, you know, I had to travel on my own. I had to go to different places and learn these things, taste a lot. When if I just spent two years maybe at four different restaurants, I probably would have gotten all that knowledge that I got in about eight years. I would have done that differently. I wouldn't have left Limpero so quickly. I would have tried to stay in that market and I would have done London again. I would never consult again. <laughs> and possibly I may consult again at some point in my career. But And why is that? Uh, that you would not do it? I, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a control freak. I'm just gonna obviously, can see if this conversation is going anywhere. I, I you walk in, uh, you teach them for a week, you change the way they do everything. This is the way it's going to be. This is going to make you more money. You're going to thank me in the end of it. You leave. You come back a couple of days later, and everything's back the way it was before you started. And then you got to do it again. And then you tell them this is the way it's got to be. And you got to talk to the boss. And the boss doesn't want to deal with it. That's why he hired you. So in the end, he just lets them do whatever they're going to do. So he can have his day over and everybody makes money in the end. All he really cares about, and the reason why he hired you, is that he makes more money. But if he's going to make more money with them doing what they want, and they just need a little bit of knowledge and a little push, then he doesn't really care what you do. And he doesn't have a connection to you. He actually, he's mad at you because he's got to pay you, but you're not there every day. You know? So if I pay you and you come into work every day, I understand this is the value for what I'm paying. But when a consultant comes in, he hangs out for a couple hours a day, he tells you how to run your business, and then he's gone, and you got to deal with all the problems, and you got to pay him probably more than you'd pay an employee to stay there every day. So it wasn't uh, the thing I wanted to do. I'd much rather get involved and be there and show them this is the way it's going to work, 
Uh, if I did consult again, it would almost be like I'm working there for three months. I would just work with them in there three to six months. I'll be in there with you and then I'll I'll train somebody and push it on, but they can do the job. But at that point, might as well just find a place and stay there. So what's it been like working in Manhattan? Manhattan, uh, in the time that I've spent here, is the greatest place for wine in the world, period. And there's a lot of reasons why I say that. Um, there's other places you can go. I mean, I happen to love Alba and I love Paris. I loved London. I think uh, I think dining out and hanging out in Paris is, for me, more fun than London. Um, but in Paris, it's, it's all about French wine. Um, in Alba, it's all about wines from Piedmont and so on and so forth. And you have other places in other parts. London, you get a good collection of the wine business there, but then it's it's heavily leaning one side uh, towards European wines. It's harder to get California wines over. In California, it's the same problem with the European wines. And you have them there as well. I'm not saying you don't have them, but you'd have more California wines there. And New York happens to sit right in the middle of all of it. And all of these wines are here and everything's here. I mean, there's no place on earth. I read an article from somebody who wrote something in London or somebody who wrote something in France. And I say, oh, that sounds just like my cup of tea. And in 24 hours, the wine is sitting in front of me. I mean, where else could you do that? When I was in London, I remember like, oh, I'm interested in that wine. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't come here. You know, so you have to like call the estate, you have to get it sent over and so like that. that. That's very different. I mean, here you can, you can come up with an idea. You can have a list that's heavy in Chenin Blanc. You can have a list that's heavy in Beaujolais and you could be successful. You can have a list that's predominantly Burgundy and be successful because uh, New Yorkers as well want to learn. They want to understand what you're doing. They want you to do something different. They're creative people. You're living amongst millions of creative people and creative people love to change. They want to experience something new. They want to know what you know. They want to be interested in what you're interested about. Uh, why are you excited? You know, I'm making a wine program that in the end means something. I didn't just put a bunch of wines on a list that you buy and we drink. No, I'm making a list that means something at the end of the day. I want to, when my career is done, to have said, if you've ever experienced Randall's list, you experience this. And you can, I don't think you can do that anywhere else. There are places, but your opportunities aren't as many. Your opportunities here are a lot. So if you were to talk to someone and they said, I don't know how to build a, a niche for myself in Manhattan, what would you say to them? The first thing I would say is you need to start to experience everything. Before you say, this is what I, I want to do, experience it all. Go and experience different wine regions, different wines. I mean, I, didn't, I, I naturally chose Italian and French, but I also had already been leaning that way, having gone through your first wine course where you're subjected to every single part of wine and you find what it is you love and then do it. And now do it, meaning research the places that do it, do that the best. I didn't just randomly go to work at Limpero. I went there because at the time it was the Italian restaurant you wanted to be in. That was where we were. So I wanted to be part of that. I went there to learn that. If something that you do is happens to be a California wine or whatever it is, go to the restaurant that does that. And calm down, be patient, because the minute that you get in there and you start to work under somebody and you start to think, I can do it better, it's not always that easy. And sometimes you don't really need that responsibility right away. You know, be young. <laughs> I started managing a $2 million restaurant at 23. 
understand that I was 80 hours a week in a restaurant at 23 years old. There's a whole set of life that I had to then go back and get later on. And so now I'm like a, you know, a 34-year-old person trying to do things that 23-year-olds do. It's not, it's, you know, we can get into philosophy of life and everything else, but go slow. Keep working under somebody. When you've gotten to the point where you think you can do it better, go to another restaurant where you can't do it better and learn it even further and get to the point where you feel so strong and so comfortable in everything you do and then take over your first list and then start to do it and build it from there. I mean, New York is, is prime for that. And in terms of buying, what are good strategies? So if you are going to have an idea where you want a seller that's going to age, uh, you need to use uh, a bit of smarts in it. So don't just buy, I'm buying 10 cases and I'm going to sit on them for three years. It's going to strain the whole restaurant. You know, buy a case, sell six bottles, put six bottles away. Buy the next case, sell six bottles, put six bottles away. Make sure those six bottles you're selling are recouping the money, not only to buy it now, but to buy it sitting in that cellar, the space that it's taking up. You have to imagine that and roll that into the price. That's restaurants. Um, in wine shops, it, it gets a little bit more complicated because you have a larger amount of wine that's there. So in buying, you know, one of the big things about retail is make sure those shelves are stacked. If they walk in and those shelves don't look like they have bottles everywhere, then they're kind of like, I don't know if this guy knows what he's doing or maybe he's going out of business. I'm not really sure. It's an old school mentality, but it works. If you walk into my shop, I tell these guys, they say, should we put the boxes in the cellar? I said, no, 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 find another spot for them. You know, like boxes everywhere. People want to see a lot of wine. They want to make sure you know what's going on here. You're buying, you're in the business, you're having, you're making it happen. In the stores, it's, it's, a, it's a bit more difficult. There's a, a small portion of money that you always have to have available. That's a little bit more than the restaurant would have. The restaurant can kind of spend the money and sit on it a little bit. In the shop, you need to really be careful. So it's in that, and you don't get that much of a markup. Unfortunately, you know, wine apps, I love them. They've made the business for wine shops very difficult because now I scan the bottle and I know everybody in a radius of two miles that's selling the bottle and what price they're selling it at. So your money, your little motor that's running it has to be moving. That cash flow has to be moving. And in a store, that's very, very important. And don't make too many big purchases. And uh, what do you want to do? Like, what's the future for uh, Randall? The ultimate future, uh, I think anybody in this business who told you this wasn't what they wanted, they're lying to you. The ultimate future is is to have your own thing. Um, cooking the food you want to cook, putting all of your life's efforts on the table in front of somebody, having a, having a wine shop, although that seems to be diminishing with the new way the world and social media is working. But... I'm never going to leave the wine business. This is it. I love everything about the wine business. So I don't see myself going anywhere there. You know, wine is an incredibly important beverage in the world. I mean, it's one of the few beverages that can dictate to you where it came from, what year it came from, whose hand touched it. It's not so much as these stamped out man-made other drinks that happen. And I want that to move forward. I wish I could do that in the future of what I'm doing. And we hopefully are going to be opening one or two new restaurants in the next year. If it's not this year, it's the following year. And I've already got a really great idea for a list planned. It's going to be focusing on one varietal. Um, tell you about it when we get there, though. <laughs> Rendell Restiano knows that when he sees smoke, there may be fire inside. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me.
Randall Restiano of Eli Zabar's Restaurant Group in New York City. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.